Right, so the word tav, uh, it means good in Hebrew. Um, and it's used in Genesis 1, seven times. Genesis 2 to 3 says, uh, uh, it, it says the trees are good for eating. The tree of good and evil, you know, evil, which is the same as not good. Uh, Eve sees the tree is good, it says. She replaced, and uh, you know, it's very interesting. It's, it's almost like she replaces with herself with God because in Genesis 1, it says God saw that it was good. But she is now the one who saw things as good. And so Tav is used seven times from chapters two to three. There is, of course, there's no rule in the Hebrew language which made Adam and Eve speak this way or God. Like it's very, very, it should be very obvious, at least, that you know, this isn't a straight hysteric historical narrative of like the writer just explaining what's happening. No, it is it's very obvious that the writer is using some types of literary elements to show like to make a theological point or making some type of additional meaning to the text. Hey everyone, welcome to the channel. This is what your pastor didn't tell you today. We have John K. Griffin on the channel. We're going to be talking about Ben Shapiro biffs it on Genesis, uh, a video by Retro Radio, Todd Frill. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that, but we had some interesting thoughts to say. And um, so, yeah, here we go. Uh, John, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your channel, all that kind of stuff? Sure. So I run a channel. It's uh, my name, John K. Griffin. And the proposition is that you can be a faithful follower of Jesus and accept modern science. And so what I do is I do reaction videos. I usually react to young earth creationists. And I also do informational videos on how to properly understand early Genesis and some informational videos on how evolution works. And I do some interviews as well. So I do lots of stuff. Sweet, man. This would be great. Then uh, definitely the type of topics we want to be talking on this channel. Yeah. All right, here we go. So uh, here's the video. All right, let's do this. The way that I draw an allegorical approach, particularly the first couple of chapters of Genesis. All that, he draws an allegorical approach. In other words, an allegory being something that didn't actually happen, but there are lessons to be learned from it. Now, this is slightly different than a parable. It is set up as a, as, as a, as a, a story. I'm going to tell you a story now, and there's going to be one message, one lesson from it. An allegorical approach, and the Bible has absolutely zero allegories. Zero, none. They have parables. There can be lessons to be learned from stories, but all of the Old Testament is cited as actual fact. It actually happened like this when Jesus was. All right. Yeah. A lot of stuff yeah. there. Huh? A lot of stuff to unpack there. So I want to maybe start with this statement that all of Old Testament is cited as fact. And this is right from the top of the. Uh, Young Earth Creationist playbook, and I hear it all the time. And he's going to go into Matthew 19 and Jesus teaching on, on marriage here. And it's 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 banal, really. It's 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 purely commonplace. And you know, it's, so Jesus cites Genesis one in the beginning, God created. And Todd's going to say, well, that means that he was saying that Genesis one was was a historical account. And there's just no basis for that. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, Jesus can refer to a passage in teaching because all Scripture is good for teaching without commenting on the genre of the passage, you know, and so there's just no no basis there. Um, and let's just say for, for sake of argument, so I, I think that early Genesis is ancient mythology, so let's just say for sake of argument that I'm right. Would Jesus referring to Genesis 1 being ancient mythology have said anything different? No, he would have said, have you not read? Um, so it's really, uh, it's really just a par for the course for this type of discourse. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there's a lot there. Um, I, I would say that, you know, I'm, 
I would lean that, you know, Jesus thought that Adam and Eve were historical, but there's no, there's nothing about this specific passage that uh, actually requires that. I mean, you can say, like, we, we say all the time stuff like, uh, you know, in the, in the movie Shrek, we'll reference Shrek, and they said, you know, when Donkey says, in the morning, I'm making waffles. It's going to be fun. We can stay up late, swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making waffles. Or right. as Buck Bunny says, you know, yeah, what's up, Doc? Or, you know, the the very popular one, as Peter, Park, Peter Parker's uncle, you know, Spider-Man, he says, yeah. with great power comes great responsibility. Like, with great power comes great responsibility. That is something very said all the time. Like, right. I've quoted that many times. And yet, I obviously don't think it's historical. Like, you, can, you can quote things without thinking that they're historical. Um, oh, right. And, and, you know, I could ask you an ethical question, Zach, and you can respond by referencing one of Jesus' parables. It doesn't mean you're saying that, you know, that parable, the events happened in time and space. They may or may not have. It's just. Oh, it's that's a good example. Totally. You know, just, yeah. Wow. And something else I wanted to add was, and I don't know if he actually meant it this way, but he says, you know, there's only one message for allegory. Like, like I don't know if that's actually a, th a thing. Um, you know, maybe he meant that there was, you know, only not not a historical message, but either way, um, as if you keep watching my channel, um, if my audience keeps watching my channel, at least, uh, you know, they'll see that, you know, there's there's many different layers. The author of Genesis is writing a lot of different things, a lot of different layers. Like you, you could say it's historical. But there's a lot of other things involved here. Um, the manifold beauty of Genesis one, a multi-layer mm. approach by Craig Davison and Kenneth Turner. Uh, they classify it like this. There's a layer for song, analogy, polemic, covenant, temple, calendar, and land. You know, they don't say like, oh, it's definitely this, but there's definitely a good possibility. They make good arguments for it. So I definitely uh, advise everyone to check that out. Yeah, it's a great um, book. Um, also, he says that there's zero allegories in the, in the rest of the Bible. Like, he doesn't give us any evidence for that. So you got like, uh, there's a lot of debate of whether Jonah or Job or allegor or allegories, like, I don't know if they, people like scholars actually use that word, but like whether it actually historically happened and like, right. We, we have to give an, I mean, maybe he does in other videos, but like, he doesn't give an argument for it. So it's like, okay, like, what do we do with that at that point? No. And then there's, there's metaphorical language throughout the Bible in, in many places. And, and you, you're right to point out Job and Jonah, the scholars disagree. Uh, we're not sure whether they're parables or historical counsel or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, very last thing, uh, he says, he, he makes it seem like there's a text that says that Adam, Adam and Eve existed or historical or actual fact. And like, we just don't see that. Like typically the writers just wouldn't comment on the historicity, historicity of an event. Asked about the subject of marriage, he said, have you not heard in the beginning, what was he citing, an allegory? No, he was citing an historical understanding of the book of Genesis. So out of the gate, we understand that Ben Shapiro has an allegorical approach question. Does Genesis 1, 2, 3, and all the way through chapter 11 lend itself toward that? Well, I, I think it I think it lends itself to, to metaphorical language. I mean, uh, Christy Hemphill did a, had a great paper in 2019 in one of the editions of uh, Journal of American Scientific Affiliation where she pointed out that when you're talking about things that are beyond the reach of our immediate senses, you know, things like creation, creation of man, creation of the world, uh, the, the greatness of God, sin, death. Uh, conceptual metaphors are actually uh, the, the best way to handle those types of things. And so when 
we're talking about the, the prehistory parts of, of Genesis, I would come into it expecting stories. I would come into it expecting metaphorical language rather than a historical account. Um, and you know, Jesus, when he was talking about things beyond the reach of the immediate senses, he used metaphorical language too. You know, the, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and so forth, so. Yeah, totally. ...approach question. Does Genesis 1, 2, 3, and all the way through chapter 11 lend itself toward that? Ask yourself the question, why would Moses write a book of history that started 11 chapters in? All right. I know you had some thoughts on this one. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, he, he, he Tom's assuming it's a book of history all the way through, but there's also prehistory. And back in the, the time and place of the ancient Near East, there was a way to talk about prehistory, about creation and the flood and, and things like that. And that was ancient mythology. And so, um, you know, the Bible is just true to the, the context in which it was it was written in. Um, and you would think, uh, I mean, Todd, my, oh, I'll also point out that, uh, you know, we can talk about who wrote Genesis and there are various opinions on that. But assuming that at the very least, maybe there was source material that came from Moses. Moses was well positioned to understand and write in these ways. I mean, he grew up in Pharaoh's court and he would have had uh, access to the library where he would have written things that apparently Todd maybe hasn't seen, like the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Egyptian myths and so forth. And uh, so, um, you know, that's that's what I would say there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, why would Bar Moses write a book of history that started 11 chapters in? Well, one, like you have to show that Moses actually wrote it. Um, like, okay, so wh where did we get that from? Where do I get the idea that Moses wrote? So. Uh, the verses like it says the book of Moses or law of Moses. Now, um, I mean, Hebrew, it says it's Torah Moshe and it can mean the law associated with Moses or the law about Moses. It's a simple X, Y relationship with two nouns and any Hebrew student would know this. These are in reference to the Torah or in Exodus 24, 4, where it says Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, but it never says that specifically what he wrote. See, nowhere in the Bible, ever does it say Moses wrote all of Genesis that's that's an inference from from the data you know it does say the book of Moses but that's what simply just what it was called at the time they had to call it something so they called it the book of Moses we do this even today when we say you know the book of Daniel or the book of Joshua we literally put it in our Bibles like if you look in your Bible most likely at the top it's going to say of the the header of the chat the the book it's going to say the book of Moses or the book of Daniel or probably won't say the book of Moses. The, we see, we see, it'll say the book of Daniel or the book of Joshua, but it, it doesn't say that actually in the text of, of the book of Joshua, or the book of Daniel, it's attributed to them. It says, we literally put it in our Bibles. And yet, it's, I mean, it never says it. Uh, it. It's named that way because it's, it's an important figure of the text. Now, I just want to mention one more thing on the topic, and we'll, we'll do some videos later on it. Um, Answers and Genesis doesn't actually think that Moses wrote all of Genesis. Now, it's they'd say it's possible. Well, even even I don't even know if they'd say it's possible. It's like here's some quotes. So in reference to Deuteronomy 35, uh, 34, 5 to 12, it says, talked about Moses' death. Um, you know, AIG says, these are the last few verses of the book. Like other literature, past and present, it's not uncommon for an obituary to be added at the end of someone's work after he dies. It's like they're definitely saying that there's a possibility that Moses didn't actually write the end of uh end of the Torah. And then it also says on the topic of Canaanites living in the land of Genesis 12, 
12, 6. It says, which they weren't before. Like they, the Canaanites weren't in the land before or during Moses. So answers from Genesis responds says it could also be a comment added by a later editor working under divine inspiration. And then when Dan is mentioned in Genesis 14.4, which didn't exist before or during Moses, answers says, even if near Dan, for that is the name of the other spring of Jordan, was not was added by a later inspired editor, this would not mean that it was inaccurate to say that Moses wrote Genesis. So and I think there's good reason to think that, you know, Moses could have written Genesis, but it definitely doesn't say that he wrote all of it. And God could have definitely inspired someone else to write all of Genesis. Where does it say in the book of Genesis? Okay, all this stuff that you've been hearing about creation and about Cain and Abel, that you've been hearing about the Tower of Babel, that you've been hearing about Noah's Ark, those are just fanciful tales that you're supposed to draw some general principles from. Now we're going to get to the history of the world. Can you think of anywhere where the Bible indicates that, specifically by the author himself? And the answer, I believe, of course, is no. He wrote the entire book of Genesis as historical narrative. The way that what do you think there, John? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's a there's a precedent in the ancient Near East for this type of thing, right? So we have this uh, the Sumerian king list, which is a list of kings in ancient Mesopotamia. And a lot of scholars, at least a reasonable amount of scholars, think that Genesis was maybe patterned off of the SKL. And that starts with... Um, kings before the flood who were legendary, who lived 30, 40,000 years. Uh, and then there's a flood and there's there's some parenthetical information attached to each of the kings. There are many of the kings. And then after the flood, there are more kings. And some of those at least have been, we have evidence that they were real people. So there's, there's a precedent for this, uh, one thing in, in the context of the ancient Near East. Uh, and secondly, Todd, I'm just, I'm sorry, but the Bible just isn't always as easy to read as, as you want it to be. You know, you actually have to, to study and study the historical and cultural context, and um, it's just the way it is. Um, but I would also say that within, within Genesis, there is, a, in my view, a change in genre at chapter 11, verse 27, where you go from talking about vast sweeps of time to focusing in on one particular individual in, in Abram. And... Uh, so I, th I think that, uh, you know, to me, it's not a not a big issue. Yeah. So I've I'm interested to hear what you think about it. So, like, what exactly do you see in the genre shift that goes from, you know, some type of myth, myth of history, whatever, to, yep. uh, you know, some type of historical narrative or I don't know how you would call that. Yeah. So it's just it's a it's, it's a so the the passage goes from talking about large themes and grand themes like creation and the flood and the tower of babel and it's written in to me just it's written in a style that just lends itself to well just, this is this is mythology right. and then right away just sort of shifts and and focuses on on the starts with the told out of uh introduces abram and his family and it, a lot of commentators and scholars think that actually early genesis was added later and sort of added on top of that so i don't know if you have an opinion on on that, on the timing of all that. Yeah, I'm still working all that out. Yeah. Um, I think there's good reason to think both that it could have been added later, or uh, I was listening to David Falk, the Egyptologist earlier, and like he, he thinks Genesis 111 was written by Moses. Mm. And uh, well, that's a very you know minority position in scholarship, but it's, uh, I mean, it's definitely worth thinking about, and there's good reason to think so. 
Um, yeah, there's good reason to think so. And I know, for example, with me, a lot of the Psalms tend to reference early Genesis themes. And so the Psalms were written sort of a little later. So that, that might indicate that maybe it was written earlier. At least there was source material floating floating around out there that was maybe compiled yeah. you know, during during the exile or whatever. So, but Yeah, it's really difficult to know for sure. We um, may never know. <laughs> right. So, uh, so he says... Where does he say those, you know, he's referring to Genesis or fanciful tales you have to draw inferences from? Like, why exactly do we think that Genesis 1 to 11 or even the whole book is just fanciful tales? Now, I don't, I don't really, well, he's, he's saying like, where do we see that? Where do we see people, the Bible saying that they're fanciful tales? Like, well, obviously, like, you know, we're not going to expect that. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting standard. Like, where does, it doesn't say where it's all historical. It doesn't say where does the psalm say it's all poems. Where does Revelation say it's apocalyptic? Like it doesn't tell us the genre, or very few often it does. Oh. Obvious to it might have been obvious to the original reader, and it might not be obvious to us because we're we're so far removed. But. Yeah, totally. Um, now he wrote. Uh, he says he wrote the entire book of Genesis as historical narrative. Now, I mean. He says this like I would love to hear his case for this. Um, I mean, it's definitely not all literal history. I'm not even actually sure what he, he means by historical narrative. John, do you think he means something like, like it's all historical fact and like there's no, it's all literal? Like surely he wouldn't say that. But he also, like, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what do you when you hear historical narrative? Narrative. What do you think? I think that's what he means. I, I mean, I want to be careful because I don't want to misrepresent him, but. Uh, he seems to be a an honest, sincere young Earth creationist who who takes Genesis one uh, and, and forward very literalistically, at least when it suits them. He, I'm sure he doesn't believe in a solid dome or waters above the dome, but um, you know, I, I think he I think he he really is fixed to his his way of looking at it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean. Like, I, I mean, I could point to, you know, 15 different things right off the top of my head. Um, like, for example, the names of Adam and Eve as meaning, they mean in Hebrew, they mean man and life, um, or it's translations you can use for them. Uh, you know, they weren't literal names as the Hebrew names didn't even exist at the time. This could be the names given to them, you know, which show an additional meaning on the text. Like, if we're the ancient, if we're the reader, we have to ask, okay, why in this, in this peculiar circumstance do we see that these these names were assigned to them? Um, else, uh, you know, in Adam and Eve, like in the story, you know, there's a lot of interesting, very interesting parallels that uh, Tim Mackey on his Bible Project uh, YouTube channel and uh, podcasts talks about it often. Um, like just for example, he says, uh, you know, in Adam and Eve is so in Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve, we see that they're exiled from the garden. Cain is exiled east of, out of Eden. Genesis 11 at Babel begins with eastern migration. Lot divides with Abraham and goes east. Ishmael goes east after the confrontation with Isaac. Abraham's son, Abraham's son through the third wife, Keturah, are all sent east. Esau splits with Jacob and goes east. And then another thing you could, interesting thing I've learned is, like, so the word tav, uh, it means good in Hebrew. Um, and it's used in Genesis 1 seven times. Genesis 2 to 3 says, uh, uh, it, it says the trees are good for eating, the tree of good and evil, you know, evil 
which is the same as not good. Uh, Eve sees the tree is good, it says. She replaced, and uh, and it's very interesting. It's it's almost like she replaces with herself with God because in Genesis 1, it says God saw that it was good, but she is now the one who saw things as good. And so Tav is used seven times from chapters two to three. There is, of course, there's no rule in the Hebrew language which made Adam and Eve speak this way or God. Like it's very, very, it should be very obvious at least that, you know, this isn't a straight hysteric, historical narrative of like the writer just explaining what's happening. No, it is, it's very obvious that the writer is using some types of literary elements to, or so, some type of literary uh can't think of the word, but whatever, to to show, like, to make a theological point or making some type of additional meaning to the text. Uh, any thoughts on that, John, or are you good to go? No, we're good to go. I think that's brilliant. All right, cool. That I draw an allegorical approach, particularly the first couple of chapters of Genesis, uh, is because the first couple chapters of Genesis, in my opinion, are obviously written with an eye toward allegory. So okay, hold on. Obviously? But what makes that obvious? In fact, every single Hebrew scholar of a classical school would tell you, no, it's actually written with enough detail that it's clearly historical narrative. For instance, when you have names of things, when, when you have descriptors of specific things, it is tying it to reality. Yeah, well, you know, stories have details too. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's, it's not really strong, strong argument. And I mean, there are clues within uh, for example, you know, Genesis 2, 3, that uh, could not be, it might not be straight history. You know, we have the, the talking serpent and the magical tree, and and that's just a hint. But we also, you know, we also know that there was no global flood, right? So, so you know, we can we can use the, the knowledge of God's creation that we've acquired uh, to help us interpret uh, the genre of, of early Genesis, I think. And what would you say? I don't know. I mean, that's true. I don't, I don't have much to add on that. I mean, obviously, he thinks the the flood is uh, global, so he's going to have a take, different take on that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's simply um, using the reason that God gives us for His glory to find out, you know, what the text actually means. Um, mm -hmm. It's not about like, you know, we'll talk about that later. But when when you have descriptors of specific things, it is tying it to reality. Example. The, it says at the beginning of the book of Genesis by he or Yom uh, uh, right? This is the day one, right? And then it'll say that there was day two. Well, so first of all, God creates light before he creates the sun. Okay, this is, this is an old argument. God creates light before the sun. And what he's going to get into is the length of a day is determined by what? What determines time? Who is the one who has established this is the length of the day? Was it the planets that determined that or was it God? You don't need the planets to determine a day. You need planets to mark the days, but God is the one who determined the days. A spinning of the ball and a total rotation, but that was determined. God said it is going to last this long. This is the length of the day. It is not the planets that determine how long a day is. It is God. And so before there were planets on day four, moon, star, sun, it doesn't matter because they are simple markers for it. God is the one who did. He's the establishment of time. <laughs> That was that was super interesting because he you know younger Christians are typically known for you know making Genesis all about material creation, but he's actually saying that God or God is the establisher of time, which 
I don't know if you'd actually draw that out from the text, but what do you think about all that? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think you have better thoughts on this than I do, Zach. I think it's just a sort of a strange, it's just strange. I, I think also that this, this is just another point of contact with the ancient Near East uh, literature. There are, there are other places, uh, for example, the Enuma list where uh, the sun is, or sorry, the light is created before, uh, before the sun. Uh, so there's just another point of contact. And, and it's not the only, this is not the only, also this is not the only problem we should have or that Todd should have. I mean, without the sun, it's not only a matter of light, but it's a matter of heat. You know, how, how, did, how, did, how did plants survive without the heat of the sun? You know, and so and there's a lot going on there. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, um, I'll say, I'm gonna have a lot to say on that. Um, I don't wanna go into too much detail regarding like, uh, this, this is something that I'll, I'll get to do on another video, I think of Todd's um, in response to Ben, where Ben says like, why is the sun before, before that like it actually even, um, cause he's talking about, specific, in, this kind of context, in this context, he's talking about specifically, like how do you have a day without the sun? Um, not whether light is before the sun is you know two two interesting but different things um but I, I mean i will say that um you know in the ancient near east there's all types of there's a a general idea that uh or most most ancient near eastern uh, creation uh, texts will say that that uh got there was light before the sun because uh, typically the God was giving off the light. So um, this is another video, but, you know, Todd actually mentions that, like he th thinks it's Jesus based on revelation, which is an interesting idea, but um, yeah, no, like, so he's kind of right, but at the same time, like, it's not exactly like, and the reason we, we get to it isn't exactly um, the best way to go for him, at least I think. But anyways, um, so like in regards to, does God establish the time? So this is, I want to get your thoughts on this, John, um, because Todd, I think kind of goes the right way. Um, because if you think about it, like before God decides to create, you know, in, in time and all that, like if, if he hasn't even created time, it's a different question. But in our idea, our way of thinking things, he decides, you know, in advance or whatever. And he's like, Okay, so what is the best way that I can get humans to, you know, do essentially what I why what's the best way that I could get the most out of what I what I'm creating them for? And so I think that I think there is somewhat of a good reason to think that God was like, okay, 24 hours is a good day. And then he's like, Oh, I gotta think of like how am I going to to make it so that they are able to tell time essentially. Um I think that's kind of what Todd's getting at, which is like, I'm not, I'm okay with that. Um, it's, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think I'm okay with it too. I mean, he's sort of, if I understand you right, he, and Todd right, he's making the argument of, well, God created a day in 24 hours and then just sort of fixed the rotation of the earth to be 24 hours to help us out. And, and that, fine. I mean, that could be true. Um, you know, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Um, now, if that's what is that is that what Ben's getting at? I'm, you know, I'm not terribly sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, I know I actually take a very interesting, different approach to Genesis uh, Day One um, that a lot of people watching this probably haven't heard of before. Uh, 
and this is a uh, popularized by John Walton. Um, so like in Genesis day one, it says God let God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. So God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. This was evening and there was morning marking the second day, the first day. Now, it's interesting how Todd's saying that um, time was already established. Um, like time is obviously a very big deal. Um, and for that reason, um, along with others, I'd, I'd say that, you know, day one could be talking about God establishing time. I mean, there's there's reason to think in the text. Um, you know, the ancient Israelite wouldn't have had this idea that like there's ultraviolet rays or, you know, the, the, the rays and the, the sun to, to hit something like, you know, they wouldn't have had that idea. So like, what is light? Light is not a material object to them. So, and also it doesn't say, it doesn't say it's light. He says, he calls it day. And yeah, that's very interesting because day is like a time period. And um, so if it's not material, like what is it? Well, he's, he's given us an idea where he says that it's day, it's a time period, you know, and, you know, 24 hours, like that's a different debate, but um, it seems like that's what he's describing is time in day one, not, not like ultraviolet violet rays. And it also makes more sense about when it says that God separated the light from the darkness, like that doesn't make any sense at all if it's ultraviolet rays, because it's either they're there or they're not. But no, God is separating the time, the, the time period of day from night time. Uh, Anything to add? Or no, that's, to... that's fascinating. I'm going to reflect on that. Yeah, sure. All right. God is the one who he's the establishment of time. What power or authority do the planets have? Furthermore, they're created also. And who created those planets that marked it as 24 hours? God. Second of all, how do you measure the length of a day? God. That's how you measure the length of a day. God established it. He simply put markers to help us to do that specific, so that we've got a visible measuring of it, the planets. And there's no sun and no earth. So the way that we measure an earth day is by the rotation of the earth versus the sun, right? How do you measure a 24-hour period in a time when hours don't exist yet and there is no basis for the, for the length of the day? Once again, God is the establisher of time. The planets are the markers. They did not determine it. And what does that mean? How did that work? How did that work anyway? There were, there were no planets. There were no moon, star, suns. Or am I just supposed to believe that any order gets thrown out the window because there were there was there was no marking of time until day four? He can't harmonize that in any credible way with order of events in the book of Genesis. But he continues. What do you think? Yeah. So I I got I got nothing on this one here. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I just want to add one more thing, which is that. It seems like it seems like uh, Ben is saying that it's allegorical so that it doesn't matter. Like there's no harmonizing because the, he's saying that the writer didn't need to harmonize it. And then Todd's like, oh, you have to harmonize it. It has to make sense. It has to because he's got like the, it seems like it seems like he's got this like literal mindset about it. But then Ben's saying, no, like we don't need to do that like that. Good point. Two Genesis accounts, right? There's the Genesis account that talks about the creation of various things on various days and then talks about the creation of man on day six. And then the Bible goes back and then it talks specifically about the creation of Adam and Eve on day six. So why does it bother to tell the story twice if there's no allegory to it and there's no deeper meaning to it than just it's a story about man and a woman eating an apple? Well, there yeah, well, I think uh, I think there are two stories uh, and Todd will disagree. But I think if you if someone were to approach the text 
with no preconceptions at all, no presuppositions at all, and just read Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, I think they'd come to the conclusion that they're two separate stories. Uh, for example, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 4, there's an introduction to the second story. And then the second story is different than the first in key ways. Okay, you have uh, different uh, length of creation, six days versus you know, implied one day. Uh, you have a different order of creation. Things were created in different orders. Okay, you have uh, different methods of creating. You have uh, you know, God speaking things into existence in Genesis 1 and then blowing the, putting the breath of life in Adam. And then you have uh, many humans being made in Genesis 1 and then just a, a couple in Genesis 2. And uh, so I, you know, I think the fact that these two accounts were put right next to each other just highlights the, the idea that they were not meant to be taken literally or else if, if these were historical narratives, they wouldn't have been put together. But uh, so that's, that's my view. Yeah, and of course, there's different reasons to think that it's also a, a second historical or a second account, um, specifically like the whole Toledot formula, like these are the generations of, or uh, whatever it says in Genesis, I'll put it at the bottom of the screen right now. But uh, every time this is used, it's never, it's never a recapitulation, like it's never talking about something that happened previously to like, it's like, or go into more detail, none of that. It's always something that occurs after or it's recursive. We see, we see this all across Genesis. So like just off that alone, we should it should be good reason to think, oh, OK, like this is what's happening afterwards. There are options and that God wanted to give different detail and different emphasis. Simple as that. And needing that detail, the, the, the difference in understanding of where humanity fits in the schema, the rank and order, we need a more detailed retelling. That does not have to be the natural conclusion. Why would there be two stories? Same story, just kind of a different emphasis. Why do we need four Gospels? Same story, different emphasis. Same thing is true with the creation accounts. This isn't that complex. And I'm kind of disappointed because, Ben, these are the art. These are the arguments. These have been dealt with a long time ago. Also, I... Yeah, they've been dealt with, but have they been dealt with well? You know, so there is, there's the one argument that, well... Plants are created before day six, and yet in Genesis two, there's there's no plants in the ground, and they say, well, uh, either they'll change the, the, the uh, verb tense in I think two eight, or they'll say, well, no, it was just in the winter, and the plants that hadn't been watered yet, so the plants just weren't up yet, and you know that can all work, but it just it sounds. I mean, if you have if if you're just reading the text for the first time, you you again you it just. It sounds like what Todd is doing is just trying to smush things together, and it sounds sort of concordist, and um, yeah. So, I just... yeah. Um, another thing to think about is like all of this happens on in one day, like all of it, but nothing, not even just just alone. Like Adam having to name all the thousands of species. I don't know the exact numbers. You probably know better than I do, but like that is a lot, and like. Um, someone did the calculation, like, it'd be like, you'd have to name an animal, like, once every three seconds or something ridiculous, like, all day for 24 hours, and that's just just that alone. Right. right. Never mind the, the, the surgery of creating Eve, <laughs> you know, so Adam was, was asleep for, for who knows how long. No, it was really quick amnesia. Was it not amnesia? What's it? Anesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I tend to believe in the sort of Maimonidean approach and, and the... By the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with Maimonides, he's well worth at least being aware of. I believe 12th century Jewish rabbi. He's esteemed as 
probably the preeminent rabbi, perhaps even of all time. They love to quote Maimonides. Also, I tend to believe in the sort of Maimonidean approach and, and the Thomas Aquinas approach to this, frankly, which is that if there is a if there is a lack of convergence between faith and reason, then you're getting one or the other wrong. Okay, so which one wins? Hmm? And let's just put it a little bit more boldly. Forget faith and reason for a moment. Let's talk faith and science. And by the way, let's remember, looking back in the past isn't science. It's observation. There's, there's a lot there. Uh, I think you can see that Todd's getting worked up here. Because uh, I think Ben was was right, and he quoted Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas, and I could also throw in um, I could throw in Galileo, perhaps, too. Uh, in, in saying that, uh, if either if science and the Bible disagree, then our interpretation of one of them is wrong. And this, Todd doesn't seem to get that concept, I don't think. I think to him, his interpretation of the Bible equals the Bible. Um, and when you try and suggest that his interpretation might be wrong, he gets a little, he seems like he might be getting agitated or angry. And uh, I, I think this, unfortunately, when we'll see as we roll the footage forward, I think it comes off as, unfortunately, it appears to be arrogant. Uh, you know, I, I the, the Bible is what I say it is, and I can't be wrong. And it also might be cloaked, seems to be cloaked in self-righteousness where, well, I believe the Bible and you don't. And I wonder to be be kind to Todd, maybe there's there's, a, there's an element of fear there, maybe a fear that if his interpretation is wrong, then his theology is wrong and he can't seem to deal with that. Or maybe he has a, a, a real need for certainty uh, that's real important to him. So uh, there could be other things going on, but um, you know, it's just, uh, I, I think, I think there's, there's an issue here. And, um, and, so, and so he gets into this combative element now where he's like, well, well, who's wrong? Is the science wrong or is the Bible wrong? And it seems like it's going to go anti-science now. It seems like that's where this road leads for, for him. Yeah. Also worth mentioning, I think that like, so like, what's the, per, what's the good reason to talk about like, oh, like his psychological state? Because I think that the people listening to this, that they are, you know, a lot of them are in the same boat. And, you know, if we can recognize like what exactly like, pushes our buttons or what exactly, you know, like, why do we need this certainty about the topic? Like, you know, maybe Todd doesn't have that idea. Maybe he does. I don't know. But like for the people that do like if we can recognize that that can help a lot with our bias and like whether we're looking at objectively like we're talking about god's word here like this is super important yeah absolutely uh, mm -hmm. and i have the same advantage as anybody else living in the 21st century because we can't go back and test it in a laboratory we can't we can't recreate it we we, we don't have the time for that and so it's not science. We look back and we try to figure out what might have happened. That goes for both. Yeah, so he went anti-science. Uh, he did it. Um, and, uh, you know, so looking back in the past, he says it's not science. So, Todd, when you look in a telescope and you're looking at the stars, you're looking back at the past and yet you're doing science, right? So, I mean, we can study the past. Of course we can. You know, we know at various times in the past what the sea levels were. We we, we know what the oxygen levels were in the environment and carbon dioxide. We, we have fossils. We know how back in time, how far back they were in time. We, we, there are universal laws that, um, you know, stay constant relative pretty much. And we can, 
go back and use those to study the past. We can do math. You know, we can do we can do a lot to study the past. So this this sort of anti-science place he ends up is just not very productive. Um, and you even wonder if he, it seems now he's going to go, maybe he'll pull out Ken Ham's line of, were you there? You know, it's just, it seems to be where this is heading. Yeah. And I just think about it earlier. It's like, like even answers in Genesis, even like the, the super young earth creationist, you know, movements and apologetics organizations and all that, like almost all of them would still say that we can talk something about the past. We don't have to rely just on the Bible, but it's just like this, this one liner, like, Oh, like, it kind of makes sense. But like, in all reality, like we're talking about, are you saying that like, we can never convict someone for murder just because it, because it's in the past. Cause we weren't there. Like, come on. Like, so like now we have to throw out all DNA evidence because yeah. anything circumstantial or, or DNA based is you, you, you can only convict people if there are witnesses. And it's, it's just those for both the creationist and the evolutionist. We weren't there, but there is somebody who was God. And he inspired Moses to write down exactly the details that he wants us to know. Not in every single detail, certainly, but enough to know that he made the place. And so what Trump. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So he's going to get into the um, his his battle again between science and the Bible, and he's going to say, you know, who wins? And you know, I mean, who loses is Todd's interpretation. You know, I think if if there are places, and we'll see if there if there are places and uh, if there are questions about which the science is sort of new or not real resolved, and yet Scripture is really clear, uh, then as Christians, I think we should. We should accept what Scripture says and say, well, you know, we think the science will will come around and we'll wait for that. But when there are situations where the Scripture is not really clear and there are plenty of ways to interpret it and there's lots of disagreement, on the other hand, the science is just super, super, super clear, uh, then we can use our God-given faculties in a study of, of God's creation to help inform us on how we should best interpret His Word and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, and again, I think is we're gonna we're gonna see that Todd Todd is stuck in this situation where he doesn't. I'm not sure he can recognize that his interpretation of scripture might not be the correct one. And so it's either the Bible or science. I think it's unproductive. When when things seem to contradict, who wins, the Bible or science? Answer: the Bible. What trumps science or reason and the Bible? To Ben, it's quite obvious. Science and reason are superior to Bible. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Ben would would necessarily say that. I don't want to speak for Ben, but I, I think Ben he sums it up when I think when he says in a minute that uh, you know it, it's when they're both interpreted correctly, there should be no contradiction. So we just need to check our assumptions if we think there's a contradiction. So um, I don't know. Did you get anything out of that? Yeah, I'd say. You know, even in specific, like what Trump's reason in the Bible, like, like, I don't really even know what he's saying here. Like he's using reason to try and understand the Bible. It's not like he's just not thinking about it. Like he spent this entire video using reason. So like, it's not reason or the Bible, even to him, like to buy it to Ben, it's science and reason are superior to the Bible because, uh, well, I mean, when you say something like that, it portrays Ben as someone that, you know, he doesn't want to listen to God's word. He's. Like, I, I don't know if that's the best way we want to look at Ben. Like, that's 
one that's not obviously not good for the audience but like it's just not very charitable i don't think mm. right because if god created both if god created science and he created faith there really should not be a conflict between them and if you can't misinterpret the science right if the science is clear enough then you have to start looking at whether you've misinterpreted a text all right yeah sorry i did that um but no i just want to say that like the argument ben is making is you know he's more confident in the science based off of like you know when we we need to be honest with ourselves like sure it is god's word sure like there are aspects of it that you know are going to be clear like the gospel and all that but it's not all going to be clear like we're talking about an ancient document from thousands of years ago that was written in a different language nation culture and in scientific worldview if anything what he's doing is he's assigning a lower confidence in himself trying to be humble just to read this ancient document you know it's god's word like you want to take this super seriously which is like the opposite of pride and not that Todd specifically said it's prideful, but he, he kind of gives this like idea that like the Ben's being prideful and you know how Ben is so bad and Todd is he's the moral one and you know he got he's choosing Ben's choosing you know the science over the Bible like no that's not what he's doing you know Todd should be making an argument for why he thinks that we should be so confident of his understanding of young earth creationism not not just like you know going and psychologizing Ben over like, and I just want to say like I I wouldn't even say that I agree with Ben's argument here, but but what the the approach that he's taking, he's saying that okay we can be super confident in the science and like okay you know if you don't agree with it that's fine, but you you know posing it as in science of the Bible like that's just simply not what Ben's doing. Ben Shapiro is a six foot tall Presbyterian woman. There you go. That's, that's what Ben Shapiro is. That's that's my observation. That's my conclusion. And somehow Ben is Ben is suggesting. Well, now one has to trump the other. So who trumps? Who wins? That's my observation of Ben. Ben is going to say, "No, I'm about a five foot, four inch male Jewish man. Who who wins?" And the answer is the the object, the one who is it, or the one who did it. Do I put my trust in science, logic, and reason, or do I put my trust in the Bible? Here's what you just saw from Ben. He's a fellow who appears to have some sort of a high view of Scripture, and yet, in this particular instance, he has allowed the scientific community, which is historical science, is not science at all, to force him to reinterpret Genesis. This is Wretched Radio. May you think, Tom? Yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think that really hit home. Uh, I think when Ben suggested that implied that maybe Todd's interpretation of Genesis might be off, I think Todd sort of lost and got frustrated. And I think, I don't think, I think he mischaracterized what Ben was saying. And I think just looking back over the course of the whole video, I think that Ben may have a, a higher regard for scripture than, than Todd does. I think Ben is at least trying to look at it in its ancient context. And I think uh, Todd is, is maybe lacking in that area. So, um, yeah, that, those are those are my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like Todd is so confident in, in his, his interpretation that he can't even like fathom the idea that he's wrong, and, and that's why he's putting this up. Whether like it hasn't he hasn't he didn't I don't even know if he even mentioned the word interpretation in this video. Like there's zero idea in Todd's mind. It seems like that Todd could be wrong, and therefore. He's, he's it's just like oh like ben must be making excuses because science and like like I, it seems like todd just has such a 
higher view of his interpretation, his, his percentage chance, like he is just so certain that he's that he's right, that he literally cannot be wrong. He's, he's oblivious that other people could be right. Uh, but of course, we all have ob our lenses. We're not objective. We all can be wrong, wrong. Unlike Todd, Ben realizes that at some point we can be wrong about reading ancient documents, super ancient documents, and realize, you know, he, he just needs to change his worldview. And I wouldn't even say that he has the right worldview, but like, I think at least he's taking somewhat of the right approach here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And it's unfortunate because uh, this whole idea that, well, you can't be wrong. Then when people disagree with you, you attack them as, as, as not believing the Bible and it leads to acrimony and it's, it's not healthy for the church. Right. Not healthy for the church. It's not healthy for healthy dialogue of learning truth. Like once again, we're talking about God's word here. Like this is super important. We've got to take this super seriously. We can't just be letting our, our bias and like what we want to think affect how, how we should read the text. Like this is God's word. Um, John, do you have any extra thoughts as far as just like the overall summary of the video and all that? Uh, no, I, I think, uh, I think Zach, I think you did a good job leading us through it and, uh, um, you know, I'm good. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think everyone will enjoy you having on here. Interesting thoughts. Good, uh, good perspective on all this. Um, I want to direct the entire everyone else on this channel to uh, go look, check out John's stuff. He's got some awesome videos on Genesis and the Bible and like, you know, how to, does science contradict with the Bible? All that kind of stuff. Hope you, I, I know you guys will enjoy that. Like, I think I really appreciate his, his perspective on it. But yeah, John, I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, hope you have a good night. All right. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, cool.